What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff Sapier, and this is episode 88 of the Adult Education Podcast. This week, I'm chatting with author and journalist Tamar Haspel. Thanks for hanging out today. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to the show. Adult Education is a fun project for me that I do out of the love of conversation and learning. If you want to support me or the show, the best way to do it is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. It's free. All you got to do is click those five stars. I know most of you listen via Spotify. Those five stars are huge there. If you are using a platform that allows a review, I'd love it if you could share just a few words about the show. That also helps the podcast algorithm guide know which shows they want to push out to some new listeners. Here's a random thought to start with. This is about random thoughts, actually. Uh, I essentially gave up Twitter the day that Elon Musk bought it. I haven't been back on in what's now been over a week, I think. Uh, I do feel a sense of clarity about the whole thing, really. I mean, I'm not getting triggered on a daily basis by ignorant and uneducated opinions from online trolls. That's been really nice, I have to say. But I always use Twitter as a place to put my random thoughts, and I still have random thoughts But now I don't have anywhere to put them. I I don't know what to do with all of these. Where did we put random thoughts before we had social media? I've got to find a new outlet for this. If you have any advice on that, please feel free to hit me up. We are on Instagram at Adult Education Podcast if you want to let me know what you think. Uh, Let's get back on topic, though. Ever since I bought my first home, I've tried to grow vegetables in my garden. I love this process. There's just something so freeing about being outside in the garden, working to grow something that you know you're going to eat and hopefully enjoy. I've often wondered if I could live off the land. I don't know if you've ever had that thought. Could you do it? Could I live off the land? I know that I could not. I I mean, I think if I were forced into it, I'd probably find a way to survive, but I'm definitely a city mouse, so I don't think that I could do it at this current moment. But that's what attracted me to this week's guest. I caught up with Tamar Haspel. Tamar is a journalist turned author with her new book, To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. So here's the quick backstory. Tamar and her husband were New York City residents. They moved out of their New York City apartment to a home on two acres in Cape Cod. There they made a rule that they would eat at least one thing in every meal that they grew, caught, or cultivated on their own. It became a really interesting challenge and one that's gone on for quite a few years now. Uh, This book is great. It's filled with a lot of successes and failures with a lot of humor and humility along the way. And Tamar was just a wonderful guest to have on the show. I hope to have her back on again sometime in the future. I also hope that you really enjoyed this conversation because she was fantastic. A quick note before we dive in, we did have this conversation back in March, so you may hear some references to winter. I just didn't want you to think that we're crazy and didn't realize that it's May now. All right. We we, we do know what time of year it is. Hi. Hey, how's it going? Oh, wait. Oh, there we go. The headphones. There we go. That's an important part of the setup. <laughs> you know, it's funny is uh, I had to pivot today because my daughter usually takes a nap around this time, but she is not sleeping. So we're we're doing lunch right now uh, here together. Hi. What's her name? <laughs> her name is Eloise. Hello, Eloise. That's a beautiful name. Well, thank you. But I kept thinking I was going to forget something like the headphones. And I was like, where am I? What am I forgetting? Something because I had to shift all of my stuff to the kitchen as opposed to my studio. I'm like, where am I going to be? But we make do with what we I, got. <laughs> that's right. Do you have a dog? I mean, we, <laughs> we do. But she's apparently sleeping somewhere else, right? Usually when the baby is Damn, in the high chair, it, the dog is there. That's usually the rule. We could have a total party here. <laughs> I, know, I know. The chaos of working from home, right? <laughs> yeah, it's good and it's bad. I mean, I, I it's kind of awesome to be able to talk to anybody around the country. And uh, uh, but I do miss in-person stuff. 
I will say I used to do all of these interviews just via phone calls and it wasn't until the uh -huh. pandemic where I was like, well, let's try out this video chat thing, see if people are willing to do that. And it's so much better to have a conversation with someone when I can actually see you, even though there's a delay, I can at least see you, which is nice. I totally like it much better. Um, you know, I, I was just on the phone with somebody and it always feels a little bit disembodied and a little bit back and forth. Whereas, you know, we're, we can see how we're reacting to things. And I think it makes for a better conversation. 100%. Well, I am excited for this conversation. I will admit, I didn't get the, I, I booked this interview last minute, so I didn't get the book yet. I have like a printout of the PDF so I could go through some stuff to have uh, some things to talk about. But uh, so far from what I've read, it's just fascinating. Tamar Haspel, uh, to boldly grow, finding joy, adventure, and dining in your own backyard. I was particularly attracted to it because literally I got the email as I was heading out the door to work on my garden. Uh, for this spring. And I was like, well, this, if this isn't the world telling me I have to speak to tomorrow, I don't know what is. That's perfect. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I'm trying anyway. You know, I bought when I bought the house with my wife, uh, there was a raised garden bed that is now just gone to hell over the last couple of years. So I have to kind of tear it apart and build a new one. And that's my progress or my project uh, for this early spring, late winter here in Baltimore. So I'm in the process of working on that so I can actually do a decent garden this year and not just throw a bunch of crap in it. Uh, you and me both. We were just, my husband and I were just talking about how we're going to expand our raised beds because we have a very sloped property and it can't hold nutrients. So we have to do that. So we're thinking about the same things. Are you still in Cape Cod? Yes. I have to say, I grew up in New England. I grew up uh, just on the southern edge of New Hampshire, right above Massachusetts. Um, so I felt you when you were talking about the uh, seasons being January, February, March, 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 June, because that is 100% how it feels up there. Yeah, it totally is. And anybody who's been from in this neck of the woods understands that. And it, it's, yeah, no, it's, and this is the first March. Yeah, right. <laughs> drizzly and nasty out, which is a par for the course. You've got so much more to look forward to. <laughs> um, so I got to tell you, uh, oh, I should ask you, what has been, from a gardening standpoint, because I know the book is not just about gardening, it's about many different things, uh, but from a gardening standpoint, what for you has been the biggest challenge for you to grow? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, the insects beat me to the cabbages every single time. So that's been, that's been tough. We've just decided that we can't grow root vegetables because we just, the soil just won't support them. And, you know, one of the things about gardening is that nobody can tell you ahead of time what you're going to be able to grow given your soil and your microclimate. And so the only way to do this is to just jump in and try it. And so, yeah, we've figured out some things that we can't grow, but we've figured out a lot of things we can grow. And so that's, we go for the, the both the figurative and the literal low hanging fruit. <laughs> it's one of our lessons. One of my biggest struggles so far has been cucumbers. And I used to watch my dad growing tomatoes really? and cucumbers. That's what he would grow every year in our garden. It was, you know, my dad was no gardener, but that's what he had success with. So I was thinking to myself, well, if that can work that easily, I should be able to do it. Four summers in, I have not been able to master the cucumber. I don't know what it is. So give up on the cucumber, grow something I'm else. I'm done. I'm done with cucumbers. Last year, I started to get a few and I said, They're, forget it. That's it. You're dead to me. <laughs> you are dead to Cucumber? me. Cucumber? <laughs> Uh, so tell me more about first-hand food. Descri describe this uh, this idea to us. First-hand food is any food that you get from the landscape around you with your own two hands. And when my husband and I started this project, when we moved from New York City to Cape Cod, 
I started doing this thing where I wanted to have one food a day that we got firsthand some way, garden, fish, forage, you name it. And what occurred to me was that there's this feeling that you get when you eat food that you're invested in in that way. And you must know it. So the tomato that you grow in your garden is different from the tomato that you get in the store. It feels different and it tastes different, but it's not just that it tastes different. It's that there's a satisfaction there. The food that you get anyway, firsthand, has that same feeling Yet there's no name for the category. There's no, and so I had to make one up. So my husband and I started calling it firsthand food. And we just sort of started trying to get it every which way from Sunday. And it turned out to be a much more interesting and compelling project that we had. And then we had any idea it was going to be when we started. What I love about you and your story too is that there's a lot of people that will talk about, you know, write books or living off the land and everything they do is with their own two hands, but you don't focus on that. You still admit like, Hey, you know, when you go fishing, you might be doing the fishing, but somebody else built the boat, somebody else built the rod. So you're, you're, you're still okay with saying like, okay, we still have to work with other people here. I'm not doing it all by myself. We are, I, my husband and I, we are, have no ideological commitment to this in terms of self-sufficiency. We are staunch interdependentists. We, we want to be connected to other people. We didn't do it so that it would be a, you know, a hedge against Armageddon and we'd have our own food. Come Armageddon, I'm going down with the ship. And we did it because it was interesting and it was fun. And it turned out to be the, the opposite of self-sufficiency because it connected us to our community. It connected us to the other people who were doing these things. And that's what's so wonderful about it. It sort of strikes a chord of our common humanity. It doesn't wall us off from the world. Humanity is a good word too, because you were just talking about, you know, like the, the tomato, for an example, that you grow feels different, it tastes different because you grew it. And there's a different element mm -hmm. to something that you grow in your garden, even though technically in a taste test, it would probably taste no different than something you'd buy at a store, but you feel this sense of pride. You have this humanity that mm -hmm. kind of comes with that. And I find that to be so inspirational, even though it's just a tomato that could grow on its own in the wild. For whatever reason, I'm like, I did this. Right, and that's exactly it. And you know, you think about it, when, when I first started doing this, and I got that feeling. It was it was like a different kind of satisfaction than the satisfaction you get like if you ace a test or you get a promotion or you sell a book. It's like it's primordial. I mean, the urge to feed ourselves and our family is is a very fundamental part of the human makeup. And you know, without it, we never would have survived. And so it really does dig deep into the reptilian parts of your brain and scratch an itch that I didn't know was there until I actually started doing this. And, and the thing about it is that we all have it. Everybody who does this, any kind of food related enterprise gets this feeling. And I'm gonna go full out kumbaya on you because I actually think that, that we should lean into that, that you know, so many things divide us, but here's this thing that unites us. Mm -hmm. 
it kind of makes me think of that, you know, that old saying, uh, give a man a fish, you feed him for, you know, once, but you teach a man to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. There is an element to that where you think to yourself, like, okay, I understand you taught the person to trade, but when you, when you are successful at doing something, you feel so much better about it. And then you're inspired to go do something else. I was talking to somebody about a, a homeless project, a homelessness project. And they were like, when we just, when we help them take a step it inspires them to do so much more. You know, we don't show them pity. We help them take that next step. And they're so inspired to go and, you know, get a new job, get a house, whatever it may be. Jeff, it's so right. And so do you remember the book that came out a number of years ago called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up? Very familiar. And it was an international bestseller by Marie Kondo. And I read it just to see what the what all the fuss was about. And the part that got me was where she talked about how all of her clients or would follow this method. They would clean up their houses. And then many of them would go on to do things like ask for the promotion, break up with the toxic boyfriend, um, lose some weight, whatever was their personal goal. And at first I'm like, yeah, right. Do what? Cause your house is clean, but that's not it. It's exactly what you said. It's that when you solve a problem that is in your purview to solve that you are capable of solving it, builds you up, it makes you strong, and then you can tackle the next thing. And when I started doing this, yeah, we planted a garden, but then the project started getting bigger and more complicated. And, and you know, obviously using power tools isn't rocket science, but the fact that my husband and I were able to design and build a chicken coop set us up to do the next thing. And that set us up to do the next thing. And after all of these years of doing this, I'm a different person. I'm a competent person. I have some, some confidence in my skills. And I think that that helps you when you go out in the world and tackle other problems. Oh, I agree 100%. And where you live in Cape Cod, there's a lot of these aspects in your book, you know, from the fishing uh, to building a chicken coop to hunting, I mean, and even growing a garden. Uh, there may be challenges to a lot of these things, but you are in an area where you are able to do a lot of those things. But you came from a space in New York City where even growing a tomato plant on the roof of your building was like, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. So I, I love that you, that you had the inspiration from just a simple plant that you grew at your you know, apartment building in New York City to, to try something totally new like this. So one of the great things about trying something new in this realm is that nothing terrible happens if you fail. It just doesn't work out. So you go on to do the next thing and you've learned how not to do something. It's really a great space in which to test yourself, to push yourself and to take a flyer. Where were you from before New York City? Did you grow up in New York City? No, I grew up in Poughkeepsie in the Hudson Valley. Oh, okay. and uh, and then I, I spent my early adulthood in California before I came back to New York City. So you've been in places where so so Cape Cod was not totally foreign to you. Like the area where you were moving no. to was not like people that move from the city and live their entire life in the city and go there. I mean, that's a culture shock, hundred percent. But moving there was not something that totally was like, oh my gosh, I've never seen water before or whatever. Well, I had spent summers here as a kid, oh, okay. summer vacations. And so it was, it was quite familiar to me, but I will say it was a lifestyle U-turn. And, you know, I, I was basically 
I was a city mouse, but when I moved here, I realized I don't know jack about mice. <laughs> and it was like, there was definitely a steep learning curve. Yeah, there's a whole different set of things to think about there. Uh, I, I do love this idea of the one thing per day that you're going mm -hmm. to that you're going to get. I forget the exact term. I wrote it down here. Uh, but the one thing per day to eat that you grew, you caught, you were you were mm -hmm. involved in. Um, my head always goes, maybe it's because of where I live right now. Like I can't have chickens in my backyard because it's, there's a law about it. I can't have chickens here. So I, my thought is always go straight to the garden. Uh, but it's interesting that you guys were like, we're going to go all out. We're doing everything, everything that we can possibly do. And, you know, again, what's the downside? And yeah. so it was funny because um, when I decided that I wanted to try this challenge of having one food a day that we get firsthand, it was like, it was the end of December. And I remember we were driving in the car and Kevin was driving and I said to him, honey, because I was looking for a project to write about, honey, do you think we can eat one food a day that we get firsthand? And Kevin is, has always been wildly supportive of me and my projects and my career. And he has a total can-do attitude. And he goes, not a chance. <laughs> like, what do, you, what do you mean, not a chance? Who are you and what have you done with Kevin? And, and he said, well, what are we gonna eat all winter? And I'm like, well, you have a point. And there were a few garden things that we had in the freezer and, and I had made some rather unsuccessful red pepper jelly. It was more like a syrup and, and, and there were clams. We could eat clams. And it was our winter of shellfish. And we got so tired of clams, I can't even tell you. But the clam was the first food that I really went out and found in the landscape. And I remember the day that I raked up the first thing that wasn't a rock. And I'm like, holy moly, it's actually a clam. And, and again, it's that feeling over and over and over again. I imagine that in this process too, it's really made you appreciate, you talked about how you tried to make red pepper jelly and it didn't work out for you. It turned into more of a syrup, but I imagine it's made you a lot more creative to try to figure out what to do with things. Because if you have a tomato plant, you're going to get a ton of tomatoes. Theoretically, you can't right. eat all those or you get really sick of them. So you got to find someone else to do with them and store them for the time when you don't have tomatoes. That's exactly right. Because the whole nature of firsthand food is that you have none until the very moment where you have much too much. Right. And so not only do you have to figure out ways to do with them, and I will tell you that my freezer is sort of my preservation method of choice, um, but you also have to have the skills to use them after they've been frozen maybe a little too long, maybe a little bit of freezer burn. Lots of times food you get firsthand is absolutely delicious. There are wild mushrooms that you will not be able to duplicate in the store. A fish right out of the ocean is a wonderful thing, but you'll grow the woody green beans. You'll have to use the, you know, the frozen fillets that where the seal on the vacuum seal was, was compromised. And so a part of firsthand food is figuring out ways to use food that is suboptimal. And, and it's funny because it, it is, it proves something. When we go fishing and we catch a fish and we take it home and we put it on the table for dinner, it's very satisfying. When we take the filet that's been in the freezer all winter and you cut off the little uh, freezer burn parts and you make dinner out of that, 
that fish is not as delicious as the fresh fish. I, you know, hopefully you make something good out of it. We've learned to get good at that, but it's just as satisfying. The satisfaction from firsthand food isn't deliciousness. It's firsthandedness. Your column for the Washington Post, did that start before or after this project that you did? After, well, after, sort of okay. during. Or during. Um, yeah, so when when I lived in New York, I wrote a lot about nutrition and cooking and, and those kinds of things. Um, and then when our efforts turned to getting our own food, I started writing about those kinds of things. And, and I had a real curiosity about where food comes from and what our agricultural system looks like. And so I talked to my editor of trying to cut through some of the misconceptions about that. And, uh, and the column was born. And I've written a lot about agriculture. Lately, I've been writing a lot about human nutrition and, and obesity because I think that there's a lot of misinformation out there, and and I hope to try and help people make sense of it. I, I had this thought while thinking about you reading the book and, and knowing about the article or the column that I wonder if there was a moment where you were like, I don't know if I want to do this project because if I fail, I'm going to look like an imposter for my column if I can't make this happen. <laughs> but But I think people respect that. Sure. I think if you're willing to go out and you're willing to fail and you're willing to say it out loud, I think that's a good thing because if you don't fail, you're not trying hard enough. And so um, we actually, and there's not a lot about it in the book, but at the same time, uh, we have an oyster farm and we were getting that off the ground and, and as you know, a commercial enterprise. And being an actual farmer helped me really understand actual farming, even though in many ways it's different from, you know, growing 4,000 acres of corn and soy in Iowa. There are a lot of commonalities, too. And so um, I think a willingness to get my hands dirty and and experience these things firsthand, people will give me credit for, you know, getting out of my comfort zone and trying it, even if the things that I do don't always work out. And of course they don't always work out. I know it sounds silly to say, but I, I love when people fail and they admit it. Like if you tried something oh, and totally. you fail and you say, you know what, that I was terrible. I made a mistake. I failed. I don't care what position you're in. If you admit your failure, you get respect from me because so many people are so scared to admit failure that they'll lie. They'll cheat. They'll do whatever they can. Just even Wordle. I have a friend that cheats using Wordle and I'm like, what How do you, can you get cheat from at Wordle? Looks up, looks up five letter words in the dictionary that have word patterns. And I think like, what do you get from this? You get literally nothing by guessing it right. Why would you cheat? But people are so scared to fail. I love it when people say like, I messed up. It's great. Yeah, well, there's a lot of I messed up in the book. And, you know, I made those mistakes, so you don't have to. Well, that's true. Like, I guess I haven't gone through the whole book yet, but even your story about, uh, you know, digging for, for oysters or clams, like your, just your process of figuring out how to do it. When you were building the cold frame, you figured out how to build the cold frame as you were going. You know, you, you had an idea mm -hmm, that thought, mm -hmm. okay, well, this might work better. And then you went to Home Depot and found things like, wow, this would have been a lot cheaper if we had done it this way, whatever it may be. So it, it, you're right. I mean, as you're going through it, you're, you're talking about the process as it's happening in this book. It, it's like you said, trying to figure it out for yourself means of course, that you're going to fail sometimes. But it also means that when you come out the other side, you have that that feeling that we were talking about, that strengthening, that building up, that you have conquered this thing 
And now you're that much more ready to go to the next thing. And you don't get that if you cheat at Wordle. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, for you, what is the, what's the craziest thing or the weirdest thing that you found while you were doing this that you were like, well, I never thought I'd be doing this in my life. Well, I gotta say it was the chicken plucker we built out of the washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to get to and that part. That will have to go in the failure pile. But it also goes in the success pile because then we figured out how to fix the problem. But if you had told me when I lived in New York that I would be trying to figure out how to build a chicken plucker out of a washing machine, I would tell you you were nuts. And of course, you know, the the things we did wrong started from day one. I mean, we were not the first people, believe it or not, to make a chicken plucker out of a washing machine. But the, one of the first things we did was remove the housing from the guts because we only needed the guts. So we took the housing off and we didn't pull the garage down in the process, but it might have happened. And then we took the, the housing to the metal pile at the dump. And then my husband started working it to, to turn it into a chicken plucker. But we discovered too late that the wiring diagram was on the inside of the housing. So the only way we could make it work is using the console and turning it to spin to get the thing to spin and, and to work. So let that be a lesson to you. If you're going to turn a washing machine into something else, keep the wiring diagram. I will certainly keep that in mind. You know, I will say one thing with the book that I missed was pictures because there were definitely things you were talking about where it's like, I kind of feel like I want to visualize this and I'm having a hard time doing that in my mind's eye. Yeah, I know. It was, it, it would have been nice to be able to include pictures and we did talk about it, but you know, there's so many considerations when you try and do that. And so I, I had to rely on my evocative prose. Well, as you can probably hear in the background, Coco Melon is failing me right now. So I'm probably gonna have to wrap this up. But do you have social media That's where people right. can follow you and find out more information about this? I would love to hear from people who are doing these kinds of things. I'm on Twitter at, at Tamar Haspel. Come join me. Perfect. Well, Tamar, thank you so much. This book is really fantastic. The title of the book is To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dining in Your Own Backyard. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for sharing your story. Thanks, Jeff. A pleasure to talk to you. Big thank you to Tamar Haspel. Her book, To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard is available now wherever you get your books. And thank you to all of you for making us a part of your day. I appreciate you listening to Adult Education. Until next time, be well.